Good morning. It's great to have you here this morning at Bay Life Church. My name is Shane Drury. I am the high school pastor here at Bay Life, and it's a joy and a privilege to be able to share the Word of God with you this morning. And so I want to start this morning by asking you to uh, go back to the days when you were in high school, all right? For some of you, a few months ago, a few years ago. For some of you, maybe much longer, right? Okay? But maybe more particularly, um, can you think back and remember the summer before you went to high school? I don't know about for you, but for me and my friends, man, it was the most excited we had ever been to go back to school. We were excited to go to high school, to be high schoolers, and to get to do all the things that high school students get to do. Things like hopefully maybe play varsity sports, um, get our driver's license, go to the prom, maybe go on a date, right? Things like that. We're excited to go to high school. And I can still remember um, like the first official day where it felt like we were real high school students. It was a few weeks before school started, and we all went to the school to get our schedules. And I can remember going to my high school that day. My friends and I all just so excited. And I go and I get my schedule, and I pick it up, and I look at it. And instantly, all of my joy and all of my excitement immediately turned into dread and fear. Because of one particular class on my schedule. Swim class. All right? Swim class. Now, for most of you, you'd probably see that and you'd be excited. And you'd think, oh, this is going to be easy. I mean, how hard can swim class be? I mean, what kind of homework can they give you in swim class? Right? But for me, I saw swim class on my schedule. And immediately, my heart started to beat quickly. And sweat started to form on my forehead, because, you see, still to this day, I can't really swim. Not that good, at least. And so I knew what was going to happen. I was going to go to my freshman swim class, and all of my friends were going to be down in the deep end, and they were going to be jumping off the diving board and going off the high dive, having a great time, and then they would yell down to me in the shallow end something funny like, hey, Shane, Put your floaties on and come down here in the deep end with us, right? And I would be embarrassed, and I would be miserable, and I would hate it. And sure enough, a few weeks later, swim class started, and it pretty much went exactly like I thought it would, all right? It was, it was, it was horrible. Um, our, our swim teacher would have us try to do all these different tests and, and things, um, And I could just not do them, or at least not do most of them very well. And it was embarrassing, and I did have a very difficult time with it. And so, um, quickly, I began to develop a strategy, 
all right? Our swim teacher would always tell us, tomorrow we're going to do this. And on days when it was going to be something very difficult that I knew I couldn't do, I would strategically forget to bring my swim trunks, all right? You know what I'm saying? I mean, they're not going to throw you in the pool when you're wearing clothes like this. So I'd forget to bring my swim trunks, forget, so I wouldn't have to go through the activity and be embarrassed and unable to do it. Well, my swim teacher, he was a, he was a smart man, all right? Eventually, he figured out my strategy, and he came up to me uh, one day towards the end of swim class, and he said to me, Shane, if you don't bring your swim trunks tomorrow and do this last activity, um, you're going to fail swim class. Now, I was a good student. I was concerned about my grades, and that caught my attention. But it was what he said next that really caught my attention. He said, if you don't bring your trunks tomorrow and do this activity, you're going to fail swim class and have to take it again. All right? There is no way I wanted that to happen. And so uh, I bring my, my swim trunks to class the next day, and the activity we had to do w- w- was very simple, probably. It would be very simple for most of you guys. Uh, all we had to do was swim from one side of the Olympic pool to the other. That was it. That's all I had to do to pass swim class. And so class kicks off, and uh, the, the swim coach, he has a stopwatch, and he's timing everyone. Everyone's comparing times and trying to see how fast they can go. And I'm just kind of sitting in the background, just nervous as can be. And towards the very end of class, our swim teacher says, has anyone not gone yet? I'm just trying to sit there like as motionless as possible. And again, all of my friends, right, point to me and say, he hasn't gone yet. And they all have big smiles on their face. My, My coach calls me up to the front and I take the longest walk of my life, right? It's like walking the green mile. And I get up on this little platform thing that you see swimmers dive off of in competitions, and everyone in the class is standing around the outside of the pool, and they all have the smile on their face, and the room's kind of buzzing a little bit because everyone knows something funny is about to happen, right? And so my swim coach has a stopwatch, and uh, he looks at me, and he says, one, two, three, go. And I stand there. And of course, everyone kind of giggles and laughs. My swim coach, he tries to give me like this little pep talk, like, you can do it. I know you can do it. I'm going to count you down from three again. You're going to do it this time. You're going to do a great job. And he says, one, two, three, go. And then I put my hands up in the air like this, right? Because that's what you see swimmers do on TV before they dive in. And then I do about the dorkiest thing I could possibly do. I go like this. And I hold my nose, all right? Because I'm not a water person, if you can't tell. I don't like water going in places where it doesn't normally go. And so I I, I plug my nose and I close my eyes as tight as I possibly can because I don't want water going all in my eyes. I close my mouth as tight as I can. And I basically just like fall forward into the water face first. And I've got my eyes closed, and I've got my, my mouth closed, and I'm just swinging my arms and kicking my feet like as violently as I possibly can to try to get to the other side and pass swim class. And then something crazy happened. My hand touched the wall. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience before, 
Um, but in the like millisecond from the time my hand touched the wall until I pulled my head up out of the water, I had like a thousand thoughts go through my mind. And, and it went something like this. It was like, man, that seemed really fast. Maybe I'm not a bad swimmer. Maybe I'm really a great swimmer. And I didn't know it. Maybe I'm going to pull my head up out of the water and everyone's not going to be laughing. They're going to be cheering because I had the fastest time in the class. Maybe I'm going to join the swim team. Maybe I'm going to win the state championship. Maybe I will get a scholarship and become an Olympic gold medalist swimmer, right? Like all these thoughts are racing through my mind from the time I hit the wall to the time I pull my head up out of the water because it was so fast. And then I pull my head up out of the water. And of course, everyone's not cheering. They're laughing, right? Because what had happened was, instead of swimming down to the other side of the pool, I had swam like seven feet directly to my right. And I had no clue that I had done that. If you think about, why didn't I get to where I wanted to go? And the answer is pretty obvious. I had my eyes closed, right? And it caused me to, to go in the wrong direction. And sadly, the same thing is true for us as Christians, as followers of Jesus at times. We know where we want to go, right? We want to move forward. We want to draw close to the Lord. But at times, we close our eyes. We close our eyes to the truth and the hope that it offers. And we begin to go in the wrong direction as a result of it. Now, often this is the result of difficult circumstances. Um, Maybe we have an illness. Uh, Maybe we lose a job. Maybe we lose a loved one. Uh, Maybe it's financial issues. Maybe it's family issues. Maybe it's just the pressures of life. But these challenging circumstances... They come out of nowhere. And at the time where we most need to to focus on God and keep our eyes upon Him, we begin to to close our eyes in our discouragement and go in the wrong direction away from God. And so this morning, my hope and my prayer for you, uh, whether it is today, this day, or in the future, is that when you face difficult circumstances and challenging circumstances, that you would keep your eyes upon the Lord and draw close to Him rather than be discouraged and move away from Him. My hope is from the Word of God this morning that you will be encouraged to fight for hope in the midst of difficult circumstances. So, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I encourage you to to turn to Psalm chapter 42 with me. We're going to be walking through a few verses in Psalm 42 this morning. And one thing I love about the Bible is it's not about perfect people. It's not about perfect people. We see the author of Psalm 42. There's no doubt, as we'll see from the text today, there's no doubt uh, who he was and what he wanted to do. He was a follower of the Lord, and he absolutely uh, wants to move forward and draw close to the Lord. But as we'll see as we walk through this psalm, um, The psalmist at times, he closes his eyes to the truth and he starts to go in the wrong direction. And there's no doubt that the the cause of this discouragement is a result of difficult circumstances. 
we know that the psalmist, he has been captured by the enemy. And he has been exiled to a faraway land. And as a result of this, he's no longer able to enter the temple and experience the presence of God and worship him. And so, uh, we see as we walk through this, this psalm, the psalmist, he's, he's kind of alternating between great discouragement and despair in his fight for hope. But we see very clearly um, from the beginning that the psalmist, he is absolutely wanting to draw close to God, and he is thirsting for the living God. And that's my, my first encouragement to you this morning, is as you find yourself in challenging circumstances, or any circumstances really, um, my hope for you is that you will thirst for the living God, just as the psalmist does. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. As a deer pants for, for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Now it's important to realize here the word pants. It's not referring to skinny jeans, right? It's not referring to khakis. That's not what we're talking about. That's not the type of pants we're talking about here. It says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. The word pants here, it means to want, to to yearn for, to long for. So the psalmist is saying, as the deer longs for water, so my soul longs for you, O, O God. Now, my guess is, um, a lot of us get an in- inaccurate picture uh, of this scene that the psalmist is trying to paint and create. Uh, maybe you're like me, and the first time uh, you read this passage or when you hear this passage, um, you get this scene in your head, and it's probably the result of the soft, sweet song that many of us ha- have sang throughout the years, As the Deer Panteth for the Water. You all know it? You with me? Uh-huh. And it's a soft, sweet, pretty song. And maybe that's kind of the picture we get in our mind. Or maybe you get this picture in your mind of a painting you've seen in a Christian bookstore or someone's home of this peaceful, content deer. And he is approaching this abundant, flowing stream. Well, the real picture that the psalmist is trying to paint is actually quite different. It's not sweet, it's not peaceful. Um, the deer is desperately searching for water, and it's nowhere to be found. There's no doubt that the, the psalmist, he had seen deer, especially in times of drought, in the dry season in, in Israel, where, where streams and, and bodies of water were very sparse. There's no doubt the psalmist had seen deer desperately searching for water to survive. And usually the deer were quite cautious when they were going to get a drink because they knew that predators are are lurking and are waiting to strike. But at this point, the the deer is so desperate and so thirsty that he's abandoned all caution and he's searching for water anywhere he can find it just to survive. His thirst is great and the drought is severe. The same could be said about the psalmist in this passage. He, he, he is thirsty beyond words. He, he thirsts, he longs to be in the presence of God. 
but as a result of being captured and exiled and removed uh, from the temple, he's no longer to experience the presence of God um, because Jesus has not yet gone to the cross and he doesn't have access uh, to the Father like you and I do. And so we see he's, he's thirsting for God. Verse 2, listen to what it says. He says, my soul thirsts for God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He, he desperately desires, he's def- desperately wanting to appear before God. But notice it doesn't say just any God, right? He says, my soul thirsts for the living God. The living God. The one who has no beginning and no end. The one who not only created life, but the one who sustains life. The one who is not only alive, the one who is life. And truly the only one that can satisfy our thirsting souls. This is the God that he was longing for. This is the God that he is searching for. And so, we see from these two verses, really a a crucial and beautiful principle from the psalmist that we must emulate. I don't know if you caught it here, um, but the psalmist, he's in these, these challenging, horrible circumstances. But above all else, he's not primarily seeking relief from these circumstances, He's not primarily seeking relief from these circumstances. Above all else, he's seeking the living God himself. It's not what God gives above all else that he's seeking. Primarily, he's thirsting for the living God himself. We need to follow the example of the psalmist as well. When we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, it's certainly not wrong to pray and ask God for relief and to to bring an end to the challenges that we're facing. We should do that. God tells us to do that in his word. But above all else, our, our number one primary request must be, God, give me more of you in the midst of this trial and this struggle, and to keep God first at the center of what we desire. Um, this really hit me one day, this principle, um, when I was playing with my dogs, of all things, all right? Um, my wife and I, we have two Australian shepherds. You're going to see a picture of them up here on the screen. Um, they're long-haired, shaggy dogs, uh, not the best Florida weather dogs, right? Uh, we moved here from Illinois, and uh, they're awesome dogs. They're now about 10 years old. Uh, my dog on the right here with the brown, his name is Luther. And uh, the dog on the left with the ice blue eyes, his name is Augustine. And so um, they're duly named after great theologians and great Illinois basketball players. Okay? So I kind of showed you some of the passions uh, in, in our house. Um, but Luther and Augustine, uh, they, are, they are very different. And their differences are seen from the moment that I walk into the door at my house. I usually, when I get home, they greet me at the door. And Luther, he's very excited, and he's, he's kind of spastic when I walk in, and he barks, and he's real excited to see me. But then he calms down pretty quickly, and he kind of just follows me wherever I go, and he's real content just to, to sit by my side and just kind of be with me. Um, Augustine, on the other hand, 
His greeting is very different. From the second I walk in the door, he goes and he tries to find um, this old green ball that we got him several years ago. And he he goes and gets it, and he runs up to me, and he he looks at me, and he drops the ball at my feet, and his eyes are real big, and his tongue's sticking out, and his little tail's wagging back and forth, and he's just looking at me like, throw it, throw it, throw it, throw it. And I pick it up, and I throw it, and he blitzes after it, and he brings it back, and he drops it at my feet in the same routine, throw it, throw it, throw it, right? And I throw it, and we do it over and over again, and he would do it for hours. And I was thinking to myself one day, Man, why does he love this ball so much, right? I mean, like, it's dirty, and it's old, and it's slobbery, and uh, to be quite honest with you, it's kind of gross, right? So I'm thinking to myself, why does he love this ball so much? And then it hit me one day. It's not the ball that he loves so much. It's the boy that he played it with that he loves so much, Right? It's not what was given to him that he loved so much and that he desired so much. It was the giver that he loved and desired that companionship to have so much. And the same needs needs to be true for us. Above all else, above all things, whether we are in trials or not, our greatest desire of our heart Our greatest prayer, our greatest cry to God must be for more of him in our lives and for his presence um, to be in our lives. The psalmist, above all else, he, he is thirsting for God. He's thirsting for the living God. So I ask you this morning, you know, a good kind of time to reflect as we wrap up 2015 and enter a new year. We all have souls like the psalmist. We, ha- we all have souls that thirst. So I ask you this morning, what are you trying to quench your thirsty soul with? What are you trying to quench your thirsty soul with? Um, is it the living God? Or is it other things? Is it material possessions? Are you trying to quench your thirsty soul with success at your job, achievement? Are you trying to quench your your thirsty soul with the approval of others? Um, Are you trying to quench your your soul, your thirsty soul, with sinful things? Um, Like pornography, substance abuse, impure relationships. I can tell you, these things, they will satisfy your senses in the short term, but they will never satisfy your soul in the long term. Only the living God will quench your thirsty soul. As Jesus says, the living water that will allow you to never thirst again. So I ask you this morning, what are you thirsting for? What are you thirsting for? I hope and pray it's the living God. Again, we see the psalmist, there's no doubt, that's what he's thirsting for. He's thirsting for the living God. Um, As we see in the text, he asks in verse 3, at the end of verse 2, I mean, he says, When shall I come and appear before God? That's his desire. But in verse 3, we start to see his discouragement. He says, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? My tears 
have been my food all day and all night long. He's sad. He's broken. I don't know if you've ever been to the point where you've been this discouraged or so um, down or so heartbroken. Um, But for me, when I was in college, when I was 19 years old, uh, the best friend I had ever had from the time I was eight years old, he died really unexpectedly one day when I was 19. It was by far the most difficult thing that I had ever experienced. And I was, I was so sad. I was so heartbroken. I, I had no appetite. And for two days, for two days, literally the only thing that went into my mouth were my tears. My, my tears had become my food all day and all night. And that's the point of brokenness. And that's the point of discouragement that the psalmist finds himself in. Uh, because he's been removed from the temple, because he's been captured, because he can't experience the presence of his God. And not only is this part of of why he's so discouraged that we see uh, from the second half of verse 3 that his captors are taunting him as well. He says, my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? You're suffering, you're captured And his his captors are are pointing their finger at him. And they're saying to him, where is your God now? And deep down, deep down as the days go by, the, the psalmist, he begins to ask himself that very same question. He begins to say, where are you, God? Where are you, God? And we see from the rest of the passage If we just look at a few glimpses, a few of these verses, um, the psalmist, he's becoming very discouraged. He's closing his eyes to the truth and the hope that it offers, and he starts going in the wrong direction. In verse 6, he says, my soul is cast down within me. In verse 7, he says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He's saying, He's so overwhelmed by his circumstances that he feels like the waves are crashing on him and he's drowning in his circumstances. And then perhaps the most strongest statement that he makes, in verse 9, he says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why have you forgotten me? The word forgotten here, um, it kind of means ignored. It kind of means abandoned. It kind of means rejected. And so he's so focused on his circumstances. And he's so discouraged that he he calls out to God, why have you forgotten me? Why have you rejected me? He's so focused on his circumstances uh, that he is actually the one that is forgetting who God is and the promises that God has made to him, that he would never leave him. Or forsake him. And again, this happens to us, right? The storm comes. The challenge comes. A lot of times we're not ready for it. It comes out of nowhere. It's unexpected. And it just, boom, it drops on us. And we get so consumed and overwhelmed with our circumstances that we, we look up and we say, Where are you, God? Why have you forgotten me? 
And at those times, it's the time when we need most to remember the promises of God, who he is, what he's done for us, and what he has promised for us. Well, thankfully, um, the psalmist, he doesn't throw in the towel. Um, And we see from the rest of the passage that the psalmist, he continues to fight for hope in spite of these difficult circumstances. And the psalmist leaves us with two principles uh, that we need to follow as he fights for hope. We need to follow his example and fight for hope as well. And the first one we see, the first thing that we see he does uh, to continue to fight for hope is he looks back and he remembers God, which is exactly what we need to do as well. As we're in difficult circumstances and losing hope, we need to look back and remember God. Look at verse 4 with me. This is what he says. These things I remember. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. The psalmist looks back. He's discouraged. He's missing the presence and the power of God because he's exiled and unable to enter the temple to experience the presence of God. And so he looks back and he says, these things I remember. I remember how I was able to lead people into the temple and lead them to worship God. And his his presence was so powerful. And his presence was so real. And he looks back and he remembers that. And he is encouraged and he's reminded of who God is and the promises of what he's done for him. And we need to follow the example of the psalmist. When we find ourselves in challenging situations, when we begin to ask ourselves, where are you, God? And and why have you forgotten me? We need to look back and remember all that God has done for us and not allow ourselves to live in, in the lie of the present that he is not there. We look back and we remember and we're reminded of who God truly is. So I don't know about you, um, what those times are for you, what those memories are for you. Uh, One I I often look back to um, was 20 years ago. Quite a while ago, I was a senior in high school. Um, Didn't grow up going to church and uh, got, got saved at the end of my my junior year of high school, put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And it was at the beginning of my senior year. I was at our, our youth ministry on a Wednesday night. And for the first time, the first time it just really hit me that my mom, um, my mom didn't go to church. I didn't know what she knew about the Bible or what she knew about Jesus and what he had done for her on the cross. And it just hit me for the very first time that there was a good chance that my mom had never put her faith and trust in Christ to be her savior. And I just became really broken over it. And I got down on my knees and I can still picture myself in this folding chair in our youth, uh, youth room. And I got down on my knees and I prayed and I asked God, Lord, please give me the opportunity to share the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ with my mom so she can be forgiven and be with you for eternity so we can be together for eternity. And I went home that night, and uh, I went and I sat down next to my mom on the couch, and she said, how was church? And I said, good. And, you know, that was kind of the conversation that we usually had about it, and, and then went on. And, 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 then she, and then she asked, well, what have you been learning about? And my heart started beating like crazy. And I was inside thinking to myself, oh, Lord, I'm not ready yet to do this, Right? 
But here the opportunity was, and I went to my bedroom and I grabbed this gospel track uh, that I'd gotten from my church, and I went and I sat down next to my mom, and uh, I uh, began to share the gospel with her. And still get a little emotional about it, as you can tell. But um, we began to weep tears of joy together as she realized her need for a Savior. And she put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ that night. And uh, I look back, and I remember that. I remember how powerful and real the presence of God was that night. And, and man, regardless of what I'm going through, I'm so encouraged and I'm reminded that God is a God that answers prayer, that heals hearts, that changes lives. And so I just encourage you again this morning to look back, to remember when's a time in your life when God was, was very real and very powerful and very present and have those memories stored in your mind and heart and when you find yourself facing difficult circumstances, when you're discouraged, look back, remember who the Lord is, remind yourself who he truly is, and be encouraged, and allow it to help you to fight for hope. That's what the psalmist is doing here. He looks back. He remembers when he was able to worship God in the temple, and he's encouraged. And so, that's one of the things we need to do for fight, to fight for hope. A second thing that we need to do for, to fight for hope that we see the psalmist doing as we continue on in the passage is we need to hope in the right thing. We need to hope in God is what it says. So we look back, we remember the Lord and what he has done for us. And we also hope in God. We put our hope in the right place, which is exactly what the psalmist does. Look what he says in verse 5. It's, it's, it's an interesting, um, interesting thing that he does here. He says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Um, I'm not sure, again, if you caught what the psalmist is doing. I certainly didn't catch it the first time I read this passage. But what we see the psalmist doing is, He makes this transition. He's no longer talking to God. He begins to talk to himself, right? He not only only begins to talk to himself, he begins to preach to himself. He begins to, to remind himself, to tell himself the truth. He says, why are you cast down within me, O my soul? Hope in God. Hope in God. He is your salvation. He begins to preach to himself. He begins to talk to himself. Um, This is huge for us to do daily as followers of Jesus Christ. Because as Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones said, one of the great preachers of a century ago, um, he says a great deal of our unhappiness is due to the fact that we listen to ourselves rather than talk to ourselves. Now, here's the difference. When we, when we listen to ourselves, we just allow our wandering minds to, to fill our heads and to fill our hearts with things that are often untrue about who God is, 
about his love for us, about what he has done for us on the cross, about the plan and the purpose that he has for our lives. We, we just allow our wondering minds to, to think and to roll, and we very unintentionally begin to listen to these thoughts. But what we need to do, on the other hand, is we need to very intentionally talk to ourselves. We need to very intentionally, as the psalmist does here, preach to ourselves. And we need to, to, to remind ourselves and speak to ourselves the truth about who God is, how he loves us, how abundant his love was displayed for us on the cross, how regardless of how difficult things are in that moment, that he is good, that he is sovereign, that he is in control. And even this evil in our lives or this challenge, he is using to conform us into the image of his son. He's using it for good. We, we, we speak that to ourselves. We preach that to our hearts. And we're reminded of the truth and who God is. And it helps us to continue to fight for hope when we're in these difficult circumstances. The psalmist says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Literally, he's saying, why are you looking down? You're in these, these horrible circumstances. Why are you looking down away from God? He says, hope in God. He says, look up. Look at the one who can save you, who is your Savior. He is here. He is with you. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The word hope here, um, it, it basically means waiting on God to act, all right? Waiting on God to act. Now, uh, this requires trust, and it often requires patience, right? And I realize it's not always an easy thing uh, to have, patience, trust, hope. But our God, our God has proven himself to be faithful throughout the generations. It reminds me of a story that I heard one time about these two young men and uh, they were going to an art museum to look at some paintings. And one of the guys, he was really passionate about art, and so he was really excited to go. The other guy, his friend, um, he wasn't so excited to go. He was just kind of along for the ride. A chess was more his thing, but he decided to go with his friend anyways. And so they go, to this, they go to this museum, and they're looking at all these paintings, and some are beautiful, and some of them are mysterious, and some of them are just flat-out weird, right? And uh, they look at this one particular painting, and it really captures the attention of the guy who likes chess. And they're looking at this painting, and they look at it for a second, and his friend says, hey, let's go look at something else. And, and the guy says, no, I want to stay, and I want to look at this one a little bit longer. So his friend says, okay, and he, he walks away. And this guy, he begins to, to really zone in on the painting. And he looks at it, and he looks at it, and he's, he's focusing in on the details. And what the painting is, it's a picture of two men playing a game of chess, all right? One of them is, is very obviously supposed to be Satan. And he's sitting on one side of the chessboard, and he's sitting up real tall, real proud. His arms are folded, and he's looking at the person across from him with a sheepish little grin on his face. The person across from him is just a young man, but it's very obvious the young man, he is, he is distraught. He is overcome. Uh, he's sweating. Uh, he has tears rolling down his face. 
as he's looking at the, at the chessboard. And the, the title of the painting is Checkmate. Checkmate. Insinuating that Satan has won the battle over this man's life. And so this guy's looking at the painting, and again, he's focusing on it. He's looking at the details, and all of a sudden, he kind of bolts away, and he goes, and he finds his friend, and he says, hey, you've got to come back. You've got to come back. I've got to show you something. And his friend's like, what's your deal? And he's like, come on, just come look at this. So he drags him back, and they walk back to the painting, and he points to the painting, and he says, we need to find the person who painted this painting. And his friend says, you know, what's your deal? Settle down. What are you talking about? And he points to a piece of the young man's. And he says, we need to find the artist who painted this painting. He either needs to change the painting or he needs to change the title of the painting. And he points to the piece of the young man and he says, because the king has one more move. The king has one more move. Just like when Moses was leading the Israelites out of Egypt. And, and the, the Egyptians were pursuing them. And the, the Israelites, they begin to approach the Red Sea. And it looks like there's nowhere for them to go. And it looks like it's over for them. And it looks like there's no hope. But wait, the king has one more move, right? And he tells Moses to lift up his hand and to lift up his staff. And God miraculously parts the Red Sea into two. And the Israelites walk across dry land. And they're delivered from their enemy that day. Or it reminds me of when David, the shepherd boy, steps out to face the giant Goliath, nine feet tall, 15-foot spear in his hand. And it looks like it's over for David. And it looks like there's no hope. But David steps forward and he says, the battle belongs to the Lord. And the Lord gives him a sling and a few rocks. And David looks at that giant and he says, he's so big, how can I miss him? And David fires those rocks and hits the the giant Goliath and he falls to the ground. And the Israelites are delivered again. Or it reminds me of a time when the king told the Israelites, you are to pray, but no one but me. And Daniel goes to his house and he goes up to his room and he opens the windows so that everyone can see. And three times a day, he gets down on his knees and he prays to his God. And the king and his men arrest Daniel. And they're about to throw him into this den of hungry lions. And it looks like it's over for Daniel. And it looks like there's no hope, right? But wait, the king has one more move. And the Lord sends an angel that turns those ferocious hungry lions into purring little kitty cats. And Daniel and the Israelites are delivered again. Or it reminds me of the last days of Jesus on this earth. And they take him and arrest him. And they put him on trial. And they mock him. And they insult him. And they strip him naked. And they spit on him. And they pull his beard from his face. And they put nails through his hands. And they put nails through his feet. And they put him on a cross. And they leave him there to die. The God of the universe. And he does die. The God of the universe. 
And I can just imagine in that moment, Satan sitting up real proud, right? Arms folded, sheepish little grin on his face. And it looks like it's over for the world. It looks like there's no hope. Oh, but wait, my friends. The king has one more move. And three days later, Jesus rises from the grave, conquering sin and sickness and death, so that now whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And I'm here to tell you today, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, regardless of what you're going through, he can part your seas. He can slay your giants. He can deliver you from the mouth of the lions in your life. What you need to do is hope in him. Trust him. Be patient. Keep your eyes on him. Remember who he is and what he has done for you. Preach the truth to yourself. And be reminded of who your almighty living God is. And now that we're on this side of the cross, right? The psalmist was, was on the other side of the cross. Now that we're on this side of the cross, the most important thing we can preach to ourselves daily is simply the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And I just encourage you to store a few verses in your heart and continually preach to them to yourself throughout the day. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. It's 1 Peter three eighteen. Um, Christ died for sin once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. We store these verses in our hearts and we preach themselves to us daily. And when we find ourselves awakening or in a moment listening to ourselves, listening to untrue things about who God is, we stop and we say, listen, self, listen, self, the God who created everything out of nothing He loves you. He sent his son to die for your sin, to bear the punishment that you deserve so that you might have life everlasting. And now he is your father and you are his son. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Thirst for the living God. Remember God. Hope in God as we fight for hope. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that when we were hopeless and dead in our sin, you didn't leave us there, Lord. You loved us so much. You pursued us. You sent your son Jesus to die in our place, to be raised again. So that if we confess with our mouth that you are Lord, we believe in our hearts that you have raised him from the dead, we can have hope. We can have hope. Lord, we realize that that sometimes we may not experience the fullness of that hope until we leave this world to be with you. But regardless, Lord, we have hope. We have infinite hope in your son, Jesus So I pray for for each of us here as we enter 2016. um, Lord, may we thirst for you, the living God, above all else. And we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Amen. Thank you for coming this morning. We hope you have a great new year. Um, if you're new, we'll have some pastors over here in the corner. To, we'd love to chat with you, or if you'd like to, to have prayer, we'd love to uh, take a moment to pray with you. So have a great uh, afternoon. Hope to see you next week.